Welcome to BIV Today, the daily business podcast from the Business in Vancouver newspaper and BIV.com. I'm Kirk LaPointe, Editor-in-Chief. Today's what's commonly now being called C-Day, the day in which Canada officially legalizes cannabis, or at least many products involving it. The first licensed BC store opened today in Kamloops. It's clear, though, there's a lot of work to do for our government and others to make a significant dent into the black market, which ought to be around for a bit longer. Um, our journalist at BIV, who's been covering the evolution of this market, is Glenn Korstrom, who also edits our magazine, Cannabis, and he joins me now. Glenn, thanks. Hi. Busy day. It is, yeah. Um, exciting day, you know, about about a drug. <laughs> um, I wonder, uh, how do you think the launch is in terms of being ready? It, it, did Did we do this too soon? Well, I, I don't know when the, the right time is, uh, mm-hmm. and Trudeau did promise this, and uh, it's uh, kudos to him for, for bringing it forward. It's still rolling out when you consider that edibles won't be legal for uh, another year. Yeah. Today is the deadline, although I'm not sure that uh, it'll go that far exactly because the next election is set for October 19th, yeah. 2019. Yeah, yeah, a couple of days uh, after. Um <sighs> How are we set up in British Columbia? So set the scene here. We've got one licensed store in Kamloops. Um, are we going to get many more sometime soon? Uh, I was speaking to a uh, entrepreneur who wants to have some private stores, and he was talking about the frustrations with uh, uh, getting municipalities to approve and how some are uh, wanting to uh, spot zone so that it'll go through a public hearing. Yeah. It's not just you, you can move into a commercial space. So um, that's taking time. There's 173 applications where the entrepreneurs have paid the, the provincial fee. Yeah. And uh, a, lot, a lot of them have been sent to municipalities, but zero have uh, even had conditional approval. In our city, of course, we have well more than 100 uh, dispensaries that are out there right now. Is it possible that any of these dispensaries go legit and become uh, provincial outlets mm-hmm. of some sort? Certainly, yeah. A lot are, are having uh, sales and, and trying to close and mm-hmm. go through the process uh, yeah. appropriately. Others are, are staying open. Uh, and that's across the province. Yeah. People have asked me, trying to understand from a journalist, why there was not co-location uh, where you have all of these liquor stores and why why would you not co-locate cannabis? What what, um, what did you learn in, in your reporting in all of this? Well, the, the report, the Ann, Ann McClellan's uh, report initially that made the recommendations that found the basis in law uh, their uh, hearings um, informed them that uh, there was a danger in having alcohol and cannabis co-located and for mm-hmm. health reasons. Uh, yeah. they've, they've heard that uh, it's, it's a problem if you drink and have cannabis. So that was their rationale. So they make safety. you go to two different outlets in order mm-hmm. to get this and the thinking being that you won't buy two at once, you'll buy one one day, maybe another one another day, or you won't, yeah. or you just won't mix them. I think the idea is not to entice people to get both. Right, um, I see. And this is just, it's not a, a great obstacle because obviously you can go to different stores, but uh, uh, that was their rationale. Yeah. As far as what um, the police are saying, uh, do they have 
the tools now, or are they starting to get the tools now to deal with, first of all, impaired driving? Impaired driving seems to be the, you know, the the sharp edge of the stick on this one. Uh, well, they say uh, um, that uh, their officers are trained in in spotting impaired drivers. Uh, as far as actually getting a device to to test, <clears throat> there's been less. Um, well, let's pick up on that. A lot of police forces aren't uh, using anything, and, and uh, there's only one device that's uh, 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 been approved for potential use at this point. And yeah. I, I think police forces like VPD are waiting for for other devices. So, are ready. they going to go back to like the old style sobriety tests, where they're going to, you know, have you yeah. walk a line and answer some questions, yeah. and you know, put, put your finger on your nose or something like yeah, that? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, walk that's a straight probably, line. I think that's that's sort of. Part I'm not of sure I can their, put my uh, finger on my nose when I'm sober, <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, but anyway, yeah. fair enough. Um, and and then um, there is a uh, a bit of a mishmash of how provinces are each dealing with this. And uh, I was I was actually uh, surprised to see that Quebec this week saying that it's really going to have a legalized age of 21 for all of this. There is some science behind all of this, but it, but yet it ha- it had to become, I guess, convenient enough to be mm-hmm. sold so that the black market didn't flourish. Is that one of the reasons why we see pretty much across the the country that the legal age for cannabis is the same as it is for alcohol? Uh, well, I, th- I think a lot of people put uh, alcohol and cannabis in the same basket and they think of them as just intoxicants. Yeah. And that uh, is part of the thinking that uh, made the same legal age. Uh, as for Quebec, uh, you're, you're right. Um, there is some brain science in the, uh, around um, that our brains are still developing and cannabis could have uh, adverse effects. And mm-hmm. that was the rationale for Quebec to uh, to, to want to raise the age, but Trudeau did come out against it and said that uh, it'll just make the black market flourish. Yeah, there, there seems to be an acknowledgement that the black market is going to be here for a long time to come, that it's really going to drive it out. One of the ways you can drive it out, of course, is is pricing. You can, you can beat your competitor at all of this. How competitive do you assess the pricing of what we're getting um, at the start of the legalization era here? I believe the pricing on the website is starting in the $6 range a gram and going up to over 16 in BC. And that's uh, high end is, uh, mm-hmm. from what I've heard, higher than other provinces. But Mike Farnworth this morning was saying that he uh, uh, was confident that we'll be competitive because people will want um, a product that they uh, they know exactly what it is. There's quality control, mm-hmm. um, and he says he's confident that they'll choose government weed. It, it was interesting to hear people on uh, on radio and, and on television this morning who had lined up at the Kamloops store, and they seem to be buying into exactly that, which is that their preference is not to deal with you know some some person in a basement somewhere you know putting stuff into a baggie uh, as opposed to walking into something where it is sanctioned and legal and presumed to be much, um, you know, much higher quality and safe, right? right? That there's a, there's kind of a price you pay for that. The question is though, what, what do you think, what are people telling you about what kind of black market may just not get driven out by government. What are we dealing with there? Is it just the the cheapest possible cannabis? Is it uh, certain types of products? What what do you think 
can can be effectively beaten down here? Uh, well, in the, in the short term, it'll be the edibles and a lot of the substances that are uh, not approved yet. Vape cartridges, for example, aren't legal to sell. Although I, I discovered yesterday, I was chatting with a lawyer, and he said, "No, you're you can make it yourself." Um, and the mm-hmm. act of vaping is not illegal, but uh, right. but you can't uh, buy a THC laced uh, cartridge. Yeah. So uh, so the edibles uh, are part of what I think people now commonly call cannabis 2.0, which is the the next wave of legalization. You point to the fact that it'll be a year away, but there are other types of products that may maybe even a little beyond that. Is there is there kind of a a next frontier for in terms of a product line that that won't necessarily get caught up in the legalization and and may still exist in the black market down the road, is it just the cheap stuff? Do you think? Um, products in the future that will. Yeah, I mean, be- is, is is there a, uh, is there something now that the black market is is doing that it doesn't appear as if the legal market will want to uh, to to soon acquire? Well, I, I think we'll, we'll find out on the uh, on the edibles and drinks front exactly how far the government goes. And if uh, I, I've heard that if Anne McClellan told me that she thought that if there isn't compliance with the current law, there could be a pushback. And mm-hmm. if there's a pushback, um, that uh, uh, deadline for legalizing other forms of cannabis um, may be reversed. Yeah. And that would be something that the black market uh, would certainly continue to operate in. There's um, There's been a lot of writing um, and and some of it rather bemused writing about uh, the number of baby boomers who are going to uh, return to cannabis, uh, having tried it in the 60s and 70s, uh, growing their own perhaps, uh, or or buying it at, at things. This is a very different drug than it once was, right? Um, I, from what I've heard, <laughs> yes. THC levels uh, I, are I, much higher. Uh, yes, yeah. And so, and so, as a result, it's it's a much more potent thing. I've you know I've seen the comparison of like near beer to cognac. Yeah, it'd be uh, interesting to if someone sort of did have some weed from the '60s and they just put it in some sort of a vault and uh, yeah. vacuum packed, and we could open it and compare them. I, I don't know. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> they, they say the drug level in it is that, and and in terms of what we're going to be able to personally do, that is what we'll be able to grow. Uh, we're dealing with what four plants. It's four plants, um, but uh, I mean, one challenge is it, you um, you can't buy seedlings. Uh, the government has oh. has banned that. So you have to buy seeds. You have to buy seeds. And how long uh, does it take to grow? Do you know? Um, months. Months. Right? Yeah, I think it's it's. Uh, well, I think the four month uh, estimate I heard might have been from seedlings. So I'm not sure exactly from seeds. And the the bud that you want is from female plants uh-huh. and I, um, I, I've heard that seeds you might get a plant that doesn't yield what you want the, right. uh, yeah. um, from the and resin it only flowers um, a very finite amount of time it's not like it's, it's not like you know just forever bearing fruit here you're dealing with a fairly narrow time I think we've had people on our podcast who said it's it's kind of about five percent of the time you've already got something that is then uh, consumable right okay. so yeah. So, um, one of the curious things is that uh, that we we want to be able to, uh, as a country, keep uh, cannabis out of the hands of children. We uh, that's been very clearly articulated by the prime minister on down, uh, and so we're going to 
even great lengths to restrict the amount of cannabis that you can grow in your in your household. Um, you have to shroud it, I guess, in some cases, so your neighbors don't see it. That's one of the unusual, right. unusual regulations with all of this. Mm-hmm. In your view, from in, in talking to people in the industry as much as you have, um, are we are we setting about this in even too prudish, conservative a way, or or, or do you think that we're many we're, think so? Yeah, yeah. Uh, I mean, the, the rule against uh, having uh, your plants be visible to uh, uh, a, a neighbor is, yeah. is certainly something that Dana Larson has been uh, um, saying that he'll he'll intentionally float that. He wants others to uh, uh, make their plants visible. Probably, let, put let, it, let, probably put it on the balcony. Let the government come put it in your window. Them. Yeah, that kind and of I, I asked. Farnworth about this and uh, he was uh, sounding as though it was a hysteria and, and it, it's just it's on the books but it's not like anyone is going to no. be coming after you it's it's complaint driven yeah and 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 that's the the last thing I want to talk about which is you know the activity police are very busy period uh, you know with all of these rules and regulations are we likely to see much police activity in all of this because it's, it looks like people are going to be trying to figure out their way and may even inadvertently violate uh, bylaws and regulations and laws and all of this. Um, uh, I, this- I, I'd say no. Adam Palmer, the uh, the police chief here, had a press conference uh, this week, and he was saying that uh, fentanyl kills eleven right. people a week and or a day rather, and um, marijuana certainly doesn't. So yeah. uh, enforcement is not going to look any different today as it did yesterday. But uh, there's also a provincial team that uh, will be focused on uh, finding scoff laws, and uh, that will ramp up as legal stores become prevalent. Yeah, and you obviously outside of the city of Vancouver, you have the RCMP, which has maybe a whole other uh, uh, approach in all of this. Glenn, it's good to talk to you. Uh, and I, I, you know, it's, this is going to be an exciting time. Yeah. to watch it's the evolution of a, a giant market in all of this. Thanks for your time. Yeah, thanks for having me on. Glenn Korstrom is a reporter here at Business in Vancouver. Medicine, as we know, is quite costly. It's particularly so for the 1 in 12 Canadians who suffer from a rare disease. And the drugs to treat them are usually price-tagged quite expensively, sometimes up to a million dollars a year. These so-called orphan drugs are developed in our labs, but the market for them is so small that they either don't emerge properly or they carry an enormous fee to acquire them. And as more such drugs come from our labs and as more diseases are diagnosed, there are serious challenges for our governments on what to finance and what not to finance. This business dilemma is partly what I wanted to explore now with Peter Klein. He's a veteran journalist who heads UBC's Global Reporting Center, which has produced an award-winning documentary on the matter, and is hosting a town hall October 23rd on the subject at the BMO Theater in Olympic Village here in Vancouver. Nice to have you with us, Peter. Thanks a lot for joining us. Hi, Kirk. Let's, uh, it's a fascinating area. I want to understand what drew you to it in the first place. Well, I had done uh, a number of years of reporting on the pharmaceutical industry, mostly in the global health context. There was uh, some concern about a decade, decade and a half ago, uh, particularly with the AIDS, AIDS crisis, that uh, people, patients in lower resource countries didn't have access to, to medicine. 
um, and this got a lot of attention. And a lot of the a lot of the companies were sort of ultimately shamed into into uh, providing access to these medicines. But a lot of it came down to patents and who paid for these drugs to be made. Uh, universities are involved, governments are involved, and is there? It was sort of a philosophical discussion of do we have a right to medicine ultimately? Is there is there sort of a fundamental right to to pharmaceutical uh, drugs that that can save lives? And that 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 has not been really frank frankly uh, resolved one way or another but what what was interesting to me in the in the rare disease space is that there's because it's a, a, such a small market there are all of these incentives in the United States in Canada and Europe to develop these drugs to to help companies that are developing these drugs government money that goes into it and then these companies spend end up charging a huge amount of money and in a in a pu- public health care system like we have in Canada um, there are some really interesting complex questions that arise you know should we be paying those kind that, that kind of money and if we don't who, who ultimately um, gets disenfranchised and what's fascinating about this when I started looking into it is that you know we think of Canada as, as having universal health care but there is actually no there's nothing in the Canadian Charter of Rights and Freedoms that actually uh, indoctrinates access to medication um, and what what ends up happening is is someone with a rare disease in one province province might get an expensive drug, and a person with the same exact condition at the same level of of, of progression uh, might not get it in a different province because there these decisions are made on a provincial level. Yeah, there are so many dilemmas inside this. I, I don't know where to start, but w- the first one probably has to do with just the, the the dilemma of human curiosity and endeavor in order to try to find first of all to, to diagnose disease properly and then to go about uh, trying to uh, cure or treat it and reaching the point where in fact something does emerge but it's such a small market um, then the dilemma becomes a matter of almost a supply and demand issue does it not it is a supply and demand issue obviously on a sort of basic economic level if you have a very small small demand uh, it's understandable that prices is, is going to go high or the market won't be met. Um, and you, you, but you can't use regular economics here because, of course, no. people's lives are at stake. Yeah, exactly. And rightly so, the, 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 the government has gotten involved since the, the early 80s um, in encouraging this Orphan Drug Act that was passed in the United States. Similar legislation exists in Canada and Europe to encourage the development of these drugs, which gives incentives to, to companies. What's, what's really fascinating about this is someone who's covered the pharmaceutical industry for, for nearly two decades is the big issue, you know, until a few years ago was blockbuster drugs that, 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 you know, what we call this new, new me too movement, me too movement now, but we used to call a me too drug. That was the sort of the term in the pharmaceutical industry where you'd have a, a, a a proton pump inhibitor like a like like uh, Prevacid and and then another one for antacid and then they would see that that, that makes a lot of money so another company would make another one that's essentially identical but mm-hmm. just different enough to to patent it and you'd have you know a whole line of these these antacids whole line of erectile dysfunction drugs a whole line of of antidepressants a bunch of these drugs that were blockbuster drugs that made a lot of money and everyone made these me too drugs um, those patents have gone either all ended or about to end. So the pharmaceutical industry actually was in a crisis. They're like, you know, we were making a heck of a lot of money with these these kind of blockbuster drugs, lifestyle drugs, 
And those are disappearing because we've, we're losing our, our, our patents on these. And they've actually changed their business model looking at expenses of drugs for rare diseases because there, there's often a, a, a mandate by private health, health insurers as well as governments to cover these drugs. And they realize, hey, you know, I, could, I can make just as much money charging, you know, 100 people a million dollars as I would make, you know, charging a million people a hundred dollars. So um, they've, they've sort of started changing how their, their whole business model. And, but that puts, that puts public payers in a really tough position yeah. because, you know, should, should BC cover a drug that, that costs a million dollars that may only have a, a, a mild effect in helping, helping someone with a terminal illness. It, it, it it's you know these unfortunately these people are literally making life and death decisions on what drugs are covered. Yeah, but eth- ethically, I also wonder why should one person's illness be advantaged over another person's illness? Isn't it? Isn't it just illness? Well, that's a, that's a reasonable argument, and you know if you're if you're waiting on uh, an MRI to to see if you have you know a brain tumor and you have to wait three months for that MRI. Uh, because there's not enough money to, to have, you know, turn around to MRIs every week. Um, you, you can understandably say, well, why is someone else getting this, this drug? Um, but on the other hand, of course, we, we have a, a, a right, a responsibility for the most vulnerable in, in our uh, society. Mm-hmm. And people with these, these rare diseases often are the most vulnerable. These are, they're often children. These, these conditions are, you know, usually at best degenerative and often terminal. Yeah. Um, so, you know, we, I think on, on an ethical level, we also have a responsibility to, to them. Yeah. I'm, I'm fascinated, of course, too, by the province-by-province decision-making and all of this. And, and what do you believe it comes down to? Is it a matter of, uh, of just the economics of individual provinces that appear to guide this? It seems to be a little more complex than that. So I, I you know, I, I take no um, credit or ownership of the of the scholarship on this area. I have partnered with uh, UBC Faculty of Pharmaceutical Science. Uh, there's a there's a researcher there named Dr. Larry Lind, and so this was a CIHR. You know, CIHR is a sort of health funding agency in Canada. It's a CIHR funded uh, research project over five years, and he brought together former economists and 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 um, Clinicians and a whole range of of, of, of people uh, all over the country, and brought me in as a journalist to to help kind of mobilize that knowledge. And what 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 the team looked at is is you know what essentially what what you just asked. You know what are the conditions here that's led to this? And you know what what's interesting is that you know for instance you you, t- you look at these patients um, who ha- are suffering from these conditions, and many of them are are very vocal. Um, oftentimes they're supported by the drug companies because the drug companies, of course, want these drugs covered. And so they, the drug company and the patient have something very clearly in common. Let's get the province to to cover this. And in some cases, the drug companies actually pay the patients. Uh, Sometimes, sometimes it's publicly disclosed, sometimes it's not. And so these patient advocates are, are, are sometimes on the payroll of the drug companies, pushing the province to, to cover a drug. Um, they they may or may not necessarily know the science uh, of it. You know, if you have there, there's a there's a drug, for instance, that that has been effective uh, in in slowing down and treating cystic fibrosis, one of these uh, rare diseases. But only cystic fibrosis of, of people who have a particular uh, genetic um, 
uh, form of it. It has not been shown to be effective in other forms. But, you know, that's kind of a splitting hair. And, and, and if you're someone who doesn't have that, that particular genetic form, you know, is it really not effective for us? Is it maybe only less effective? So they don't want to cover it. So there are these complex issues that, that arise um, in terms of advocacy and who's advocating and why are they advocating. And the, the people in these provinces, I mean, I, my, my heart goes out to them because they have to sort through all of that and make decisions. And, you know, for the most part, they do cover these drugs, but there is, we're, we're putting together, we've actually put in um, freedom of information requests. Um, I almost actually called you for, for advice on it because you're the, <laughs> you're the guy uh, to, to, to help people figure out how to, how to even phrase these things. But we put in FOIs all over the country um, with provincial health authorities trying to find out what drugs are covered because there's no, there's no universal database of this. And we're trying to put together a data visualization to show, you know, wh- what drugs are covered, which, which ones are not in different provinces, and figure out exactly, ultimately answer the question you just asked. Well, but it's a shared jurisdiction of some sort, right? It's a federal provincial jurisdiction. Money's transferred, of course, to the provinces for health care directly. But does this speak to the need, Peter, of some kind of national entity that would um, determine if these should or shouldn't be um, financed? As drugs, absolutely. I mean, that's that's you. You, you kind of hit the nail on the head of, of one of the key issues here, which is that because it's sort of decentralized, there's a lot of problems. One is the the, the disparity of coverage, but there's also a, a lack of a, ability to negotiate. You know, uh, a a, 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 sure. a country of, of 30 million people is obviously much more powerful in terms of negotiating with a drug company because that's what happens. The 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 the, the payers actually have negotiations with the drug company saying this drug we want to cover it, but this is too expensive. For us to cover it, you know, you have to lower the price. And that, that kind of negotiation has been incredibly effective around, around the world. Um, in the United States, you don't have that because Congress has not allowed um, Medicare to, to negotiate because of lobbying from the, from the drug companies. But in most parts of the world, um, you know, Australia and many parts of, of the European Union, there's been really effective um, group negotiation with, with these drug companies and a, a, a universal policy, at least, you know, for the, for the country or for the region. Um, I think we're moving in that direction. There's definitely an awareness amongst policymakers at the federal and the provincial level that, that that's where it needs to be. But, you know, as, as you know, politics is complicated and figuring all of that out is, 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 a, is a long-term process. And we're trying to be part of that conversation. Last bit, uh, tell me a little bit about what you're going to gather next uh, next week in the town hall on the 23rd. Sure. Uh, so, who, who's so we, com- who's coming done, and what they're going to do? We've done sort of top-down scholarship and journalism over the last five years, six years actually. Um, and we thought, you know, to end this project, which has been such a, you know, wonderful and and, and uh, ambitious and, and worthwhile project, and we've had some wonderful graduate students at the UBC School of Journalism working on it, as well as at Pharmaceutical um, Sciences, to end it, we wanted to have a, a town hall. So we're bringing together um, someone who's a patient, someone who's a clinician who works in, in rare diseases, someone who, who's on the industry side, um, someone who's ultimately making those decisions on, on what, what should be covered and what shouldn't be covered, and uh, as well as a, a bioethicist, and having a, a public forum. Really, we're inviting the public to come, anybody. You don't have to have a rare disease or know someone with a rare disease, anybody who has a, a stake in this, and we all have a stake in it, as you said right before, like, is it fair that we're spending, you know, 100000 or a million dollars on a drug for one patient when, you know, I can't even get, you know, an, another drug that for, for something mild covered sometimes. Um, 
So anybody who's interested in this issue can come and uh, Paul Kennedy from CBC is going to moderate this. We're going to record it. We're going to turn it into an episode for CBC Ideas. Uh, and we really just want to foster a national conversation on this issue. Um, first of all, so people are aware that this is going on because most people don't. You know, if you don't have a rare disease or don't have connection to someone with a rare disease, you, you might not even think about this. Yeah. Um, and, you know, the other part about this is that, you know, as, 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 as journalists, we, we love stories, right? We love emotional stories and great characters. But one, that's one of the problems with, with the kind of journalism that's been done on this issue, because as soon as you trot out, you know, little Johnny, who's, you know, cute little kid who's going to die if he doesn't get this drug, the conversation's over. They, yeah. You know, yeah. who's going to start talking about, but why is that drug, cost, you know, cost that much? And is it really fair for you know, us to cover little Johnny's drug when someone else might have something else. The, the conversation is hijacked by the emotion. Yeah. Um, and, you know, it's understandable, but it's, it's a methodology that, that, that leads to a really kind of a, a, a one-dimensional one conversation about this. So we wanted to bring a whole range of people to have a, a really vibrant conversation about this, not only from the perspective of patients, but also from all these other perspectives to, to really hash it out and, and, and throw it out there. And, and, and hopefully we're not going to, I doubt we're going to answer all the questions in one hour, but hopefully we'll see some good, good, uh, good conversations. Sounds like there are even good questions for journalism and all of this. Peter, I want to thank you. Uh, the, the, uh, the event is next, uh, next week, next, uh, on the 23rd. It's at 7 p.m. as I understand, right? Uh, it's at uh, 7 p.m., yes. Yeah, great. Okay. Thanks a lot for your time, Peter. Thank you. Peter Klein runs the UBC Global Reporting Center. Thanks a lot for listening today to BIV Today, the daily business podcast from the Business in Vancouver newspaper and BIV.com. I'm Kirk LaPointe. We'll see you next time.